Afternoon, folks. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get started. I know that uh, the lines for the lunch are still a bit long, so people will be uh, coming in yet, which is just fine. But we're glad that you're here. So welcome. You're at the panel discussion of the Westminster Society on the ordinary means of grace, ministry on the ordinary means of grace. Uh, we have just a really casual format where uh, the panel, as they'll introduce themselves here in just a moment, are, are going to be speaking about uh, the ways that God has ordained for ministry in the church, uh, especially as it's understood in our tradition, to be an encouragement to us. Uh, I'll just say a quick word before we get started about what the Westminster Society is. We are not a uh, subsidiary of the EPC, or we are not a part of the uh, uh, denominational structures in terms of a court of the church. We're just a networking organization of folks who wanted to get together and have conversations and applications around our confessional documents and really encourage confessional churchmanship in the EPC and keep the conversation in the EPC centered around those confessional documents and also encourage growth in that. So that's why we're doing this. We usually publish an annual journal, uh, but uh, the publishing uh, at Amazon kept us from being able to do that this year, one of those supply chain issues, I suppose. So I know that you've probably experienced some delays of various kinds in the last year, so we did as well. But we will have a, a journal that will be published uh, in the coming weeks on the Ordo Salutis. And then next year, Lord willing, we're hoping to publish a journal uh, on the Presbyterian elder. So uh, topics and articles and application about the Presbyterian elder uh, ministry. So we thank you for being here today. And uh, we're going to go ahead and, and get started. We have a wonderful panel today, and I appreciate their involvement. I'm going to go ahead and ask them to introduce themselves, and then we will get started. I'm Ligon Duncan, and I teach at Reformed Theological Seminary, and I'm delighted to be here, Zach. I'm Scott Redd. Uh, I also teach at Reformed Theological Seminary, and I'm the head of the Washington, D.C. campus, uh, TE in the EPC. Worship at Fourth Pres, and I've loved being a part of these Westminster Institute events over the last few years, and I've just really enjoyed the conversation and the content that's coming out of these. I'm Mike Lotto. I teach at the Orlando campus of RTS. Um, I was ordained in EPC in '87, and uh, what came out of Central Presbyterian Church. So, I have a bit of history with the EPC, and uh, appreciate all that Brandon and the other guys are doing to. Uh, uh, sponsor these discussions. I'm Aaron White. I am pastor at South Charleston, Ohio at First Pres, and um, I'm also a scholar uh, in Septuagint Studies and Luke Acts. I chair the uh, Luke Acts uh, Steering Committee at the Evangelical Theological Society and involve myself with Septuagint Studies there as well. My name is Brian Rhodes, and I am the pastor at Grace Presbyterian Church in Alexandria, Louisiana, and uh, a happy member of the Gulf South Presbytery in the EPC. That's great. Uh, well, again, thanks, everybody, for being here. And uh, I'll just lead off with this statement. Uh, yesterday, Ligon used this phrase. I'll just quote him on it, that God's ways still work. Uh, and that's really kind of the center of what we're talking about today as we talk about the ordinary means of grace. I know that we could say a lot about what the catechism has to say about that, but I thought it would be helpful just at the very beginning to be clear about what we mean when we talk about the outward, ordinary means of grace. So I'm, I'm happy to, let's define it together, shall we? What would you say is a good explanation of what we mean when we say outward, ordinary means of grace? I was going to say Brian should begin. <laughs> there you go. Uh, outward ordinary means of grace would be uh, the Lord Jesus blessing his people with the gifts that he's given to them, primarily his words and his sacraments um, that are uh, deceptively ordinary. I would say in their, in their simplicity, well, what's more ordinary than words and water and bread and wine? And uh, our Lord uh, continually, uh, I think, delights to amaze us by the extraordinary ways that he uses these very simple, ordinary things to transform us and our neighbors for his glory. Uh, an illustration in itself for, for me, it's, it's, it's in the church feeding people the way your mama fed you. Um, you probably don't remember a specific meal that your mother fed you, uh, but you grew up healthy and strong, and so 
the word. It, it, or, it's ordinary in that respect, not spectacular. Uh, and sometimes our appetites are for the spectacular, like the dining out or the food as performance on the cooking network. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's a little more mundane, but more healthy. I have a funny story about that, Mike. Actually, I uh, had a guest preacher come and, and preach for me, uh, and he did a, a little bit of uh, speaking on the role of the elder in the church, and, and he preached a sermon on the benediction in Jude, and, and he prefaced it by saying, uh, I'm sure that none of you here have ever heard sermons on Jude. If you have, raise your hand. And he, about two of our congregation uh, raised their hand. There's about 100 people at that service uh, present. And... Um, after his sermon, I got up, I thanked him for preaching, and I said it was all very humbling what you presented, especially the fact that my congregation forgot that two years ago I preached a month on Jude. And uh, <laughs> I, was, uh, I was humbled by one of my uh, deeper-thinking elders who said exactly what you said, Mike, is that, you know, uh, this is like a, a meal, you know, and, and, and it does nourish you, but you don't always remember those things. And, and I like that illustration. I, I've always referred to the ordinary means of grace is the three square meals that God promises will nourish you, yet I feel like we're continue, continually tempted into the, you know, the candy and the ding-dongs and the, you know, cinnamon rolls of, of church. And, um, but it, it's pretty amazing if we have those three square meals that we're nourished and we're healthy and we're moving forward. Any, any additions to that definition? I would just say that the, the language ordinary means of grace comes right out of the Westminster Standards where it speaks of the outward and ordinary means by which God communicates the benefits of Christ's work to his people. And the, the standards, by the way, do something that even our continental friends don't do. They, they, they mention not only the word and sacraments, but prayer as the three primary means by which God communicates the benefits of Christ's work to his people. And as, as you say, the ministry of reading the word and preaching the word, it doesn't sound like rocket science. It doesn't sound flashy. It's not clowns and otters. It's not, you know, fireworks going off. Uh, the administration of the sacraments, again, it sounds, it sounds very mundane and, 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 and routine. Prayer nothing flashy about that. But by those means, Christ builds his church. And without those means, we can't be discipled. And pastors are constantly surrounded by other ministries that are focused on other things other than that. And sometimes they can be very discouraged by the fact that a, a, a church down the the road with lasers and, you know, light shows and dry ice and, you know, scantily clad people cavorting on the stage are just drawing hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people while you're just faithfully ministering God's word and, uh, and, it, and it seems like the world is passing you by. But the fact of the matter is, when, when you look at where the church is thriving, the people of God know that the word is at the center of how God is blessing his people. And the sacraments are there in order to reinforce the importance of that ministry of the word. And prayer is there so that that word not only is carried up to God, but is driven deep down into our hearts and our desires at the very center of how God is ministering to us. And one of the things that the Westminster Society wants to do is just encourage and give confidence to pastors and elders and lay people in the PCA that the Word of God is still sufficient and that God's means still work. 2,000 years later, they're still working, and they're working all over the world. I shared uh, with folks yesterday that at a Presbyterian church in Columbia, South Carolina a few years ago, an elder was converted while the pastor was reading scripture. And that's just a little picture. You know, this, this, this is a, a, a nice, normal Presbyterian church and an elder 
Not a, not a non-member who was visiting, but an elder was converted when the pastor read Scripture because he, he heard it for the first time. Now, the Holy Spirit does that, okay? I can't do that. I wish I tell people, I wish I could say, believe, 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 and just make everybody believe. I can't do that. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. But the Spirit used the Word to bring that elder to faith in Christ. That's the ordinary means of grace. I think that's, that's a super important distinction. I'm glad you went to Westminster on that because... We talk about this in class when we're preparing students to go out. You know, don't think of the, these as merely kind of practice or merely liturgical, okay? Now, you hear what I'm saying there? You know, there's been a lot of work and study recently done on how kind of ordinary repetitive behavior shapes thoughts and desires. Yep. And that, that's all great. That's all really good. But don't forget what Westminster says, that this is the means by which the benefits of your redemption are communicated yep. to you. I mean, this, this is real spiritual food this is not well we got to go through the motions because that's what we're called to do this is the actual spiritual yeah. feeling it's the means by which your, yeah. the benefits are communicated to you and i think uh, i mean I, I feel like the great commission was kind of has been the battleground at least since the uh, second great awakening i mean charles finney a, a yeah. fellow buckeye like myself <laughs> uh, uh, Oberlin. I mean, he was uh, said the Great Commission doesn't uh, prescribe any forms or methods. Well, it does actually. It, it actually pre- sure prescribes. does. The ordinary means of grace. That's right. It's right there. <laughs> and uh, and so yeah, I, I think when he's saying that, it kind of swings the doors open for the dry ice yeah. and for the you know yeah. however we want to do things. Yeah. Um, in fact, I was at a, a small Christian college, and I feel like they're training our our next generation. And um, their service consisted of three songs, a message, lights up, movies over. I mean, yeah. I, that's kind of how I describe it. And yeah. and you look at that, and that's what you see broadly. And, uh, but we look back at the Great Commission, you see the ordinary means of grace being prescribed from there. Amen. So I want to get uh, very practical in terms of what we mean when we speak of an ordinary ministry, an ordinary means of grace ministry. But before we go to the practical element, I just want to camp just a little bit longer because it was Shorter Catechism 88 mm. that we're quoting here. At the very end, it talks about how these ordinary means uh, make effectual the salvation of the elect. Now, normally when people read something like that, they assume that's just talking about regeneration. Mm. So can we comment how salvation is more than just regeneration in that regard for the believer through their whole life? Can we talk about that a bit? I I have an example maybe, and I'm sorry I called you Brandon. I get you and Brandon (laughs) confused a lot. if, if twin sons of different mothers, yeah. <laughs> if I have a tattoo, yeah, it is WLC one six seven. Now, uh, I've been to two seminaries, three degrees, and I was teaching for probably six or seven years before that catechism question landed with me. And I'm not saying it was my teacher's fault, but I think it was. Um, <laughs> larger catechism 167 is uh, how is our baptism to be improved by us and we spend so much time typically when we baptize explaining what it does and doesn't do in that moment that I honestly have never heard in probably 20 years of ministry somebody in a worship service talking to the congregation about how to improve their baptism and um, you can look up larger catechism 167 but the 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 idea is that every time somebody else is baptized we see what god has done for us and we're we are to be renewed in the same way as if we heard a word of scripture because sacraments are visible words and so an ordinary means of grace ministry reminds people at the baptism of others and it says their whole life long right that they have been baptized and that they are to, by faith, receive that word, believe that word. So um, we spend way too much time acquitting ourselves against the baptismal regenerationists and the, and the, and the, and the credo Baptists and, and pretty much um, drop the ball for the most part. I, did I give a paper on that? Okay, so there is a Westminster uh, Society Journal article mm-hmm. on, on one... WLC 167. You use the fountain pen metaphor. Oh, yeah. 
the new in box. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we, we need to use, you know, you can buy distressed leather briefcase or you can wear one, so, a new one, so it gets to, to be worn and our baptism is supposed to be well worn. I had to field this question. We do, uh, we do a shorter catechism question for each one of our two worship services each week. And when we went through 88, um, uh, our former Catholics, which would be me, and our former Baptists, which would be my wife, and then plenty of others out there heard salvation, and they thought, oh, so baptism or the Lord's Supper or prayer, like these things save me? And so I came back several weeks later. I let it sit for a little bit. I came back a week later, and again, it was, it's one of those second great awakening reverberations, a presupposition that we have of uh, salvation means, and, and Zach and I were maybe debating this a little bit this morning, in my, my sense, it's repentance. Uh, this, is, this is that moment of repentance or, or something of, of the matter. And, and I was saying, no, this is, your salvation is regeneration, election before times past, right? To glory. And God is doing that work. That's what it says about justification. It's an act of God's free grace. Uh, same with adoption. Uh, and sanctification is a work of God's free grace. That's one of my favorite questions to ask mm-hmm. teaching elders standing is what's the difference between justification, sanctification, act, and work? And God is working all of this, and he has chosen through these means to do that. And, and, and I, think, uh, I think, Mike, you, you, you hit it on the head. I mean, when we're talking about a spectrum, it's not a straight line. Uh, it's, it's a circle. And so the circle comes around, and you have... Catholics, which many of our congregation might be, uh, former Catholics. And then on the other side of the circle, you have former Baptists, and they both associate baptism with soteriology. Uh, and we here as, as Reformed folk are associating with ecclesiology and uh, being part of the people of God. It reminds me of this uh, Moses meme where it says, um, uh, we're, we're crossing the Red Sea except for the infants. They have not come to a, an age where they have decided that they are able to. <laughs> Uh, hashtag things Moses never said. Um, and, and, of course, I don't share that with my congregation because I'm not trying to offend them. Um, but it, is, it gets to the point in a humorous way is that, you know, I asked my congregation, who crossed the Red Sea in Israel? And I paused, and I was surprised to hear a lot of people say, well, everyone. I said, exactly. Now let's follow out that logic. Mm-hmm. And let's see the, how, how salvation, another distinction I said, is salvation can mean a lot of things in Scripture. It's not you being saved. Let's, let's pull it away from that a little bit and say salvation can be a temporal per, uh, protection and provision as well as an eternal destination, right? Um, so, you know, Israel, not all Israel is Israel, as Paul would say, um, but there was a protection of the people of Israel, a temporal protection. And so, you know, kind of loosing ourselves from these black and white things and entering into the grayness of Scripture that has a lot of different definitions for certain words is really important as well. So it's, it kind of is a multifaceted answer when you, when you come to it at that point. So I want to get very practical then, because um, we use this terminology favorably, an ordinary pastor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and some might think that that's a derogatory term. You know, there's nothing special about this pastor, nothing, you know, but... When we use the term an ordinary pastor, an ordinary means of grace ministry, just very practically, what are some of the marks? What does an ordinary pastoral ministry look like in the Reformed tradition? And, 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 and why is that so important to, to, to pursue? We want to encourage this as a model of ministry in our tradition. So one of the things that I've tried to do, and I've, I've not been a pastor very long, but in our congregation there's lots of people from all different kinds of what, we, what you might call uh, spiritual and denominational backgrounds. Um, and I find that the terminology of the presence of God gets used quite a lot. So whether, whether that's, that's positively, um, you know, I, I really felt the presence of God in, in the worship service today, or, or negatively, it's been months since I've felt the presence of God. It's mainly a kind of, um, the, the divine presence is mainly spoken of in a, in a kind of uh, felt on the inside terminology. So one way that I've tried to help my people in my congregation with, with some of that is to say... I think I just muted it. No? No, okay. Tried to help some of the people in the congregation is to say, what is more present, like what, what could be more, more uh, the, the idea of presence, how are you going to get more present than here I am, flesh and blood, right? This is my body, this is my blood. 
So if you're looking for the presence of God, come and get it, right? Come to the table and get it. So this is something you're hungering and thirsting after, and it is perhaps because, and I think in part we talked about Finney, we brought up Finney and second grade beginning and stuff like that, that there's a tendency, I think, with, with enthusiasm to, to root anything, like all, all spiritual activities inside of me, and anything that happens outside of me is a work, right? And so, so a way that I've tried to, in, in terms of ordinary ministry, push back say, no, no, this is something that Jesus is giving you. He's giving you what you need most, mainly more of him. And he's saying, I'm, I'm meeting you right here, right? You don't get more present than here's my body, here's my blood. So, yeah. Uh, it was inevitable for a pornography illustration to come from my mouth here. Um, but there is a certain way in which, and I say this because there are quite a few ruling elders here, there's a certain way in which the people in the church can treat pastors like uh, the objectification that happens in pornography, and that is, um, you know, when a man becomes dissatisfied with his wife, um, we, we know that's a bad thing. Uh, but often pastors feel that way when, say, their sermons are compared to the famous podcast preacher or that a movie about um, with Mel Gibson in it becomes more meaningful to their spiritual experience than having their pastor stand at the table and offer them uh, communion with Christ or um, having, you know, uh, being witness to a baptism. And, and I, so I'm not using that analogy lightly uh, because I think a lot of pastors... Um, even are demoralized by the desire for the spectacular in spiritual experience rather than the faithful um, serving of what's healthy and good. And, and, and um, so if you ruling elders here could reinforce and encourage your pastors, just keep bringing it, keep feeding us, keep giving us good things. We'll, get, we'll try to adjust our taste buds We'll try to adjust our, our, our eyeballs um, so that we want what's good. Then I think your pastors would be more encouraged to give you what's good and also to have more uh, resilience in, in serving you. Yeah, that's really mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's, a, there's a, a strong priestly aspect to the means of grace discussion. There's a strong priestly aspect to the means of... Is this on? Uh, the means of grace discussion, particularly in the pastoral epistles, um, but to where you see the pastor kind of being set aside to do this work, to use Paul's language in the pastorals, of, of keeping, you know, keeping safe and protecting that thing with which they have been entrusted, right? And the way that that work is done, the way that the pastor is administering and is, and is expressing and keeping safe within the congregational community, the thing, the gospel with which they have been instructed, is in many ways through the administration of prayer, of leading the congregation in inter, inter, intercessory prayer, the administration of the word through proclamation. Yes, there's a strong prophetic aspect to that. And yet, at least in the pastoral epistles, I think the way Paul talks about it is actually kind of uniquely or interestingly priestly. And this administration of the sacraments. And that this is in many ways kind of the basic ordinary work of the pastor. There's a, a linguist. Kenneth Pike, who used to dedicate all of his books to what he called the owls, the ordinary working linguists. And I think I, I kind of want to dedicate anything I do almost to the, the owls, right? The ordinary working pastor who's doing what? They're administering the means of grace to the congregation in that very kind of unique way. And as you said, this is, this is the spiritual food. This is actually the intimate relationship that you're called to as a pastor with your congregation to administer these things in many ways kind of like a priest would in the Old Testament. Okay, and I know, I know that gets fulfilled in Christ and sort of the priesthood of all believers. There's also this kind of uniquely priestly aspect of the pastoral ministry too that comes out particularly in the language of the means of grace. Yeah, I like that, Scott. And, and I, it, it kind of takes me back to when I was in seminary and I was going to a Presbyterian church in St. Louis and, and it was the first time I had ever heard somebody, and I know this is not part of the ordinary means of grace, but more of the regular principle of taking an offering. And he actually explained why we do that. 
And it was the first time I had ever heard anybody just in two sentences giving me an explanation. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I feel like um, part of being an ordinary uh, pastor is kind of knowing where things go and why we do things. I mean, for example, we've been in um, uh, South Charleston for the last three years. We've been working really hard at being shepherding elders. And that requires knowing who does what, you know. And, and so, you know, surprise, surprise, our ruling elders are to guard against heresy and are to take care of the congregation. And they are to, you know, rely on me to teach, preach, administer the sacraments, order the worship, uh, and, and so on. And, um, and, and what ends up happening there is that gives me margin to teach why we do certain things subtle explanations. I mean, I think one of the things that I, you know, just as an example, one of the things that I do when I come to the table is I remind folks that the guys that surrounded the table with Jesus first had the same anxieties, stresses, doubts, shames, and guilts that we do. They were not more arrived. This was not like some holiness toga party where everybody was like, you know, further along than we were. You know, that this, they shared the same stuff, and that's why they were at the table. And that's why we need to come to the table. Uh, and uh, so just simple things like that, or like what Mike said, it's almost like a wedding when you're, uh, when you're seeing a baptism. You're, you're renewing your vows. Uh, you know, I remind those who have been baptized as an infant. Yeah, you have a world of Christianity around you saying you're baptizing an infant. Maybe just let's take another go at it. You know, let's get baptized again. And uh, because you don't remember it. Well, you do actually because you're watching it happen right now. So there's, there's ordinary. I, I, and it's a root fallacy, I'm sure. But I always tell people, like, ordinary sounds like ordained, you know. Yeah. I, I'm fairly certain this is a root fallacy. Um, uh, because, uh, you know, there we are. God ordained it that way. We have his image upon us. That's why it feels so normal this way. But it's a redeemed normal. I think one, th I, I've been serving in various capacities in Presbyterian ministry for about 40 years now. And about every five to seven years, some new fad comes along. That's the thing. And there's somebody coming around to churches selling pastors and churches that this is the thing. If you don't do this thing, you're, you know, you're going to be left behind. You know, and, and almost invariably, that thing is not related to the ministry of the word, sacraments, and prayer. Uh, you know, in the, in the heyday of the church growth movement in the 1980s, I can remember people coming in saying, you know, the, the key to the growth of the church is a parking lot, the homogenous unit principle, and the 80-20 pew occupancy rule. And, um, and, 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 you know, not that those things are utterly irrelevant to anything in terms of the real world, but to put those at the center of everything uh, and, and is, is just a, huge, a colossal error. And, and yet evangelicals will follow those sorts of things like lemmings off of a cliff. And, um, and, and for pastors that are just faithfully plodding along, it can be unbelievably discouraging to them to have people in their congregation that jump on those bandwagons and, and want the pastor to jump through the hoops uh, and don't appreciate the main things, the most important things, the thing that God has told us to do. We, we don't want to close our eyes to practical realities. We want to pay attention to those sorts of things. We want to learn from the trends that are going on around us, but we don't want to be the first ones to hop on the trend nor the last ones to hop on the, the, the trend. We want to listen. We want to watch. We want to be wise. We want to learn what we can learn, but we want to stay focused on the main things and especially not lose confidence in those things that God says will work. Um, and we don't want those things to be displaced. I mean, I, I'm a person that has worked in youth ministry. And one of the things that has been happening in the last 10 years is a very happy thing is there's been a reckoning with how evangelicals have done youth ministry since the post-war era of the 1940s and 50s. And it has not worked. It has been an unmitigated spiritual disaster. And, and, and many, many faithful pastors faced well-meaning, godly, wonderful people in their congregations.
congregation saying, if we don't do like X church down the street with our youth ministry, we're not ministering to our kids, when in fact those very things that X church down the street was doing was undermining the work of God in their own children. And so again, to come back to the ordinary means is a very, very centering thing for pastors. And, and pastors and elders together have to be bought in on that. I mean, that, the, the bottom line is, if the, the pastors and the elders aren't together bought in on that, you're going to have a dissension that, that creates some sort of a, you know, a, a rhythmic uh, disruption in the life and ministry of the church. And so I would encourage those of you who are elders here, work hard to make sure that the leaders of the church together are bought in to those ordinary means of grace. I, I, I tell my students at the seminary that, you know, if your pastor, if your elders do something only because you want them to do it, it's not going to last. As soon as you're gone, it's going to be changed. But if they see, oh, this is the right thing. This is the right thing to do. We're not doing this because as much as we love pastor so-and-so, we're not doing it because pastor so-and-so wants us to do this. We're doing this because we see this is, this is biblical. It's the right thing to do. That thing will last. And so it's worth the, the slow, long, hard work of getting on the same page. And uh, I had 70 elders in my church in Jackson. It takes a little while to get 70 elders uh, on the same page. But it's worth it. It's worth it to do that. And so this is something It's super important to have the leadership of the church bought into the same appreciation. And by the way, it's in our confessional standards. You know, this is, you know, this, it's right there, you know, so it's not like we're going out and, ooh, that's interesting. I'll pull that off the shelf and try that. It's right there in our confessional standards. There's a, one of those trends, if you all remember back 15, 20 years, actually, it's kind of related to sort of Willow Creek realizing that they become over-programmatic and a lot of, caused a lot of churches to go back and revisit, like, have we become over-programmatic as well? Now I remember being in a meeting where someone was like, yeah, how do we, we want to be a simple church. How do we simplify? Yeah. <laughs> how, do we, how do we really kind of focus our energies? You know, I want to be like, we've got an app for you. <laughs> you know, here's a new movement to be yeah. part of. But you know, the, there is a way of organizing your church around the means yeah. of grace so that your community groups are augmenting the, the reception and experience of the preached word on Sunday morning. Mm. There's a way to prepare uh, for participating in the Lord's Supper, right? There's a way to, to reflect on the, the covenant community and the covenant children that we're bringing into it. There's a way of sort of organizing all of your energies in that direction. And I, I'm actually convinced you can do that in pretty much every aspect of what your church is mm -hmm. doing. Think about it. How do we think about this in terms of augmenting our experience, yes, experience, and participation in the means of grace? Uh, I was raised in a time before the children were excommunicated from worship. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so uh, I went away to college, went straight into fraternity house, and um, probably about three out of four or six out of seven out of eight Sundays, I was awake and almost in a robotic way, found myself in a church <laughs> uh, against, you know, nature and against uh, social um, practices. And it's very lonely in a fraternity house at 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning. <laughs> and I, I realized eventually, you know, why that happened, because that was where I was supposed to be. And so... Um, we're, we've been emphasizing the ministerial role in the ordinary and outward means of grace, but we don't want to neglect the, 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 the role of the home uh, and family worship. Um, Alexander's book, uh, Thoughts, Thoughts on, on Religious Worship, okay, yeah. he said there was a day in Edinburgh on a, in the spring when the windows were open that you would never be out of earshot of a family in worship on the Lord's Day. Hmm. And uh, I, that's too much probably to expect or ask in, in our contemporary day. But um, family worship uh, and, and emphasizing, prioritizing, and training uh, parents to be the shepherds of children in the home. 
and of course learning yourself to pray the scriptures. Uh, Ligon and I would both recommend Matthew Henry's book, mm -hmm. uh, A Way to Pray, mm -hmm. as a simple way to uh, 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 pray God's words after him. Um, and so it's not just a work of the ministry. Um, Anne Lamott, who wrote Traveling Mercies, a remarkable testimony, when her son was 14, he asked how much longer he had to go to church three times a week. And she said, as long as I can physically force you, that was her answer. <laughs> and it was the right answer. Yeah. Because we have enshrined the will in such a way that anything that we do without sincerity is somehow of no value to God. Mm -hmm. But that's not the biblical pattern. We're supposed to do things contrary to our wills and natures mm -hmm. so that we might put on Christ, not just wait for Christ to grow spontaneously out of us. When I, I, can I ask a question uh, of our panel? Because I'm, I'm kind of curious. I, mean, I, I, I want to share this quotation from Richard Sibbs real quick. Because I, I always think about it when I, when I think of this. He says, They, out of their own pride of their heart, think they may do well enough without the help of word and sacrament. And think, let me switch over here real quick. Good old iPhone. Uh, and think Christ did not take uh, enough dignity upon him. And therefore, they will mend the matter with their own devices so that they may give better satisfaction to flesh and blood. And, and uh, without like pointing our fingers outward, because I think one of the greatest challenges of the ordinary pastor is the external influences. I, I've been experimenting with this thought with my elders that uh, we elders are now secondary authorities. And, um, uh, you know... It, voice, but I don't want to just point to those really big evangelical voices. I want to look at kind of the celebrity pastor influence within kind of the reformed setting. I, I, how would you, how do you guys deal with that? Um, you know, because I know in a lot of our congregation, we might get up and preach and they're like, but you know, so-and-so, we all know the reformed preachers that people would, would, uh, would, would point to, well, they say this, or why can't you preach more like this or something like that? So I don't want to point outwards. I want to point inwards and say, how do you guys wrestle with that kind of celebrity pastor thing and how it affects our ordinary pastor lifestyle? I, you know, I think um, one happy thing, Aaron, is that there is probably as much, as much pushback on that kind of celebrity mentality in our circles as anywhere. So Good. now that having been said, there may be a lot of pastors that are discouraged by it because you know, you, ha you may have congregation members that have people that they listen to that you feel like you can't keep up with, you can't generate that kind of energy Lord's Day after Lord's Day. But here's my encouragement to you. One, there's nobody that can preach to your people like you uh, because you actually know them. And, and that, that podcast or that uh, YouTube video or however other, they're listening to that guy, however good he may be, however faithful and soundly orthodox and, and that person may be, that person doesn't know your people. And, uh, I, you know, I've been able to do my share of conference preaching. And I, a lot of my friends will sort of ask me questions like, you know, is that, does, that, you know, does that feel good to be able to do that kind of big, you know, big venue conference preaching? I would preach to my own people anytime over the, the, the loneliest thing in the world, by the way, is that kind of conference preaching and big venue. It is just utterly, the, the anonymity and the isolation of it is overwhelming. I only do it usually because I want to encourage other pastors. But I, I would far rather preach to my own people because they know me and I know them. And we've got to accentuate the relational. One of our mottos at RTS in theological education is the more personal, the better. Well, that is also true in terms of the means of grace. The more personal, the better. And, and I do think just like that person explained an offering, it is a good thing for a minister to explain how that works with his people. You know, you and I know one another. You've had to forgive me for messing things up. I've had to forgive you for messing things up. I know what's happening in your life. I know what's happening in your marriage. I care about it. I may not be able to preach like X, 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 or X, but nobody can preach a better message than I have because I've got the message that God himself wrote. 
Okay, so I've got a great message to preach. I've got a good writer for me, okay? And I love you, and I know you. And so, yes, somebody might rhetorically thrill you more than me, but nobody's going to love you better than I love you. And you need to understand that, that that's, the, that's the grease on the rails for the means of grace into your life, and that can't be replaced by YouTube. And it can't be replaced by a big conference that you go to every year. That's, and, and you may forget it two years later, but it, it's down there in your soul somewhere. And so I do think that you know, guys, you know, elders, pastors, others, remind your people that's how it works. The, the power of repetition of 52 Lord's Days a year will beat a major conference every time. The power of the Lord's Day, 52 Lord's Days a year, will, will beat the cathartic emotional camp experience or the YouTube preacher every single time. So don't, um, I always tell people, duration trumps intensity. And evangelical culture has been based on an intensity of, of, of a flash cathartic moment of, 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 of religious intensity and this craving after that. Duration beats intensity every single time. And so we've just got to have confidence in that. And so uh, encourage one another in that. There's nobody that can minister your people like you because you know them and they know you and they know that you love them. Can we, can we say some more about uh, the several comments that have been made, especially directed towards ruling elders? Can we spend a little more time on that though? How, how can, whether maybe from an experience that you have had in ministry or a, a friend that you have known of, how can a ruling elder support the work of the teaching elder and but together as a session say, this is the kind of church that Lord willing we're aiming to be. Just very practically, how can ruling elders be of encouragement in this area? We've said some, but let's say some more if we can. Well, one thing we um, have worked on is really returning to, as I mentioned earlier, returning to the elder, the, uh, the role of shepherd. And so, you know, I, I could tell when I got to my present location that they're ready for this. I don't think every church is ready for this, but we got rid of all committees. I mean, just because I have a firm commitment, and I'm sorry if I offend any of you, that committees are just built to waste time. And, um, they, uh, and then you end up going to session and reworking all the committees' work anyway. Um, so uh, I, I didn't see any rule uh, or anything uh, in Scripture or Book of Order for uh, committees like that. So um, I wanted my, my elders to, to shepherd. And so um, that's a lot harder to do than, you know, three hours, check the box, get the report done, and, uh, you know, because it's kind of you're on the clock all the time. And uh, so that's the start is just kind of put, putting your foot out there if you're ready. Um, and I remember this one experience, and I'm going to talk about this whole uh, guarding against heresy uh, thing. Uh, we had been talking about this shepherding stuff for a while, and we had a candidate come to the floor uh, in our Presbyterian, he had kind of a rough time over a sim- uh, over uh, over a simple question, and uh, that he should have known. And um, my one of my elders said, uh, she said to me, she says, "Well, you know, isn't isn't loving Jesus enough?" And I said, "Well, that's a that's a doctrinal question, is it? You know, and um, you know." And I said, "What what is one of your roles as an elder?" And correctly, she listed them, and one of them was to guard against heresy. I said, what is one, is, is mine? You know, is the teaching elder the trained theologian? Well, no, it's not. I said, okay, well, if there's a teaching elder standing up there, and he's not answering these with at least subtle precision, um, what, is that, what does that say about the ruling elders? And, and also, your job is to, to be there, be present. I think that's another thing, is just being present. Amen. Presence trumps everything. Amen. Um, and so being present, uh, being encouraging, being uh, prayerful, but also, you know, being diligent about, about some of those, uh, those, those aspects. I also just like that, you know, ruling elders, they have uh, the task of congregational care. Um, and I, I, you know, I love hearing when, you know, Zach and I were talking, other pastor friends, and how maybe we were out of town, we knew we had two or three elders that could come and meet with somebody who's sick. You know, I mean, the, the, there's, there's um, again, these are ordinary things. These aren't like crazy flashy right. things these are these are uh, being human things and um yeah so that's where i would start it 
Yeah, I, I, I would add to that. Um, being present in the lives of believers. I love it when churches assign ruling elders to members. Uh, I love it when a ruling elder calls my family to check in on them. Um, and, you know, we've all heard the stories about the, from the, the history of the Reformed Church and fencing the table and that kind of thing. But being present doesn't just mean being present to see if, if you're doing okay or if you're, if you're messing up or if you're somehow not able to take the sacrament. Um, you know, appropriately or something like that. Being present means drawing attention back to the work of the church. And again, I, I do kind of think it gets back to that simple church basic idea of having a, a, a session that is informed about the, the mission and the vision of the church, that's informed about the work of the church, this ordinary work that we're talking about, and is involved in the lives of uh, the congregation to do kind of like what we see, you know, in Nehemiah 8, where you have Ezra, you know, standing up reading the law, and, and, and then you see the elders going out amongst the congregation from youngest to oldest and just helping understand, explain, being in their lives. I and mean, much, uh, much of that is just kind of knowing and applying, okay? So uh, in, in much more of a full-bodied way than you would have merely from, you know, the Sunday morning pulpit being the only place of touch that you have between the, the leadership yeah, sorry, real quick. I mean, and I think that's the unquantifiable part of ministry. I mean, I think we've been so trained to count numbers, to, you know, take the temperature, all those, read the gauges, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we talk a lot about uh, ministry outside the walls. Um, you know, I uh, had an invitation from our police chief and another pastor. Uh, we sat down because we had three very violent fights in our little village in four days. And... Uh, our police chief was just kind of at the end of his ropes. What do we do? I need to meet with some spiritual advisors. I found that to be very impressive. And, and we kind of came to some conclusions. And one of them was we just, in, in villages, cities anymore, we don't have the presence of elders any longer, the wise men, uh, the men who would come in and entertain what's the conflict. Um, you know, we had a situation in our church where a, a young man was acting pretty poorly at home and the first thought was to call law enforcement i mean it was, it was getting that bad and and finally i looked at one of my elders i said if we're not present for that what are we here for you know i, I think that a couple of elders need to go meet with this young man before we go reaching to law enforcement i mean not that we're trying to again caveat is we're yeah. not trying to hide anything up uh, or uh, you know cover anything up but we're trying to be in the life uh there in uh, critical moments Anymore. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, the way a session is made up, um, it is not a board. It is um, a, um, an organic entity made up of many individuals. And so there's nothing of the ministry of the church that is solely the responsibility of the minister with qualification to ministry of the word. But... Um, I spent uh, about a year consulting with a church where they had adopted what's called the Carver model of uh, policy governance. And they were, the elders were the board, the pastor had certain policy parameters and he was responsible for the staff to succeed or not in terms of the church's mission. But they, so the, the session meetings were the elders holding the pastor accountable for his performance. That's a corporate board environment. And uh, the thing they were missing so badly was the fact that um, that the totality of the session is the governing entity of the church. And so um, Marva Don and Eugene Peterson wrote a book several years ago called The Unnecessary Pastor. And the title uh, basically, they, they say it explicitly, they say, if you as a pastor are vital to the everyday functioning of the lives of the people in your congregation, you can't possibly be doing your job. Because there are a lot of things people need, but the pastor hasn't been appointed to supply all those needs. And as a result, because people expect the pastor to supply all those needs, including like the organizational functioning and the doors being unlocked and all those other things and the gas being in the church van, uh, 
pastors are humans who respond to the positive reinforcement and the negative reinforcement that they get, and so they will bend their their job to whatever people are commending and critiquing of them on a daily basis. So as ruling elders, one of the things you can do is, is really encourage pastors to stay in their lane so that they can do well and feel some sense of serving the Lord well um, and also facing the congregation to say, that's not the pastor's job. Let's figure out whose job it is because um, sessions often mistakenly feel like they're ombuds people for the congregation. Mm-hmm. But they're ombuds people for Jesus toward the church. Now they need to, you ruling elders need to help your pastor figure out what people are feeling and wanting, what's going on if he's not getting it, but um, you're supposed to stand by him and say, look, that's not fair. Um, he's not perfect, but that's not fair and, uh, and handle the heat. And then this is one of the greatest failings uh, in American Presbyterian churches, at least. When you leave session meetings, don't go expressing your individual dissent to what the session has decided. Because you believe that Jesus spoke when you all voted. And Jesus might have been not as clear as he could because it was five to four. <laughs> but, you know, maybe, you know just, he, maybe Jesus mumbled, but, um, but that's what you thought he said. So... Um, if you need to redo that, go back into the session meeting and redo it instead of acting like um, the U.S. Congress, which is, yeah, there you go. Uh, if you all don't know and don't uh, already follow this, I'll just say Professor Glodo has a wonderful hashtag on Twitter uh, that is just filled with tweetable bits of wisdom uh, you, you've seen parts of that here. I wonder, it's basically turn the hat back around, <laughs> Pastor. Put the bill in the front. I just I want to I want to spend <laughs> our remaining time just pouring out encouragement, mm. just uh, mm. blessing one another, and it's all here with uh, you know this is the way, brothers. Mm. Let us walk in it. What wisdom or experience that you might have that would uh, give an encouraging word to to our church today? Well, along the lines of what Aaron said, and then really Scott and Mike echoed it, uh, I I do think uh, it it is really important for elders not to view themselves as the spiritual board of trustees. Elders are shepherds. That's what you are. Elders are shepherds. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have governing decisions to make. There are decisions. That's why you're meeting at a general assembly in part is to make some decisions. That's important. But that's not in the place of the shepherding responsibilities. And there's nothing more encouraging to pastors than to see elders shepherding. Uh, Harry Reeder has this funny remark that he makes that he goes around and he sees pastors doing the elders' work, elders doing the deacons' work, and the deacons just doing some work. (laughs) And um, so knowing what it is that we're actually called to do is really, really important. And when pastors see their elders actually eldering is one of the most incredible things. So both Scott and Aaron mentioned the shepherding and visiting work of elders. On the very first day that I was on the job as the senior minister of the First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Jackson, September 1st, 1996, I got a phone call that one of my members, his wife had been admitted to the hospital at Baptist Hospital just right across North State Street terminal cancer. So it would take me to walk out of my office, walk across the street, get up the elevator and get to her room less than 15 minutes. By the time I got to her room, this was going to be my first pastoral visit at First Presbyterian Church. One of my ruling elders, who's a senior partner at the largest, most prestigious law firm in the state of Mississippi, was already there. Now, you don't know what that did to my soul. I knew that I was not in this alone. And um, so to see elders shepherding is one, I mean, I've got chills right now just thinking about it. You have no idea how that encourages your pastor. And so I I just want to give testimony to faithful elders like that everywhere that are in the fight with your pastor. Because you've got people, it's right, the, the congregation may have all sorts of needs they want fulfilled that are not 
the pastor's job to fulfill. But that connection and being there for you when your world is falling around uh, your ears, that is one of the things that we want to be able to do. And for pastors to know, my elders are in this with me. I don't have to do this alone. It's not just on my shoulders. They're bearing this burden up with me. Unbelievable. I was just gonna, just gonna honestly echo some of that to, to encourage ruling elders to engage themselves in those things. Just, just a, a few days before General Assembly, one of our church members uh, is going through a, a really terrible hardship, um, su- sudden death of their uh, three-year-old grandson. Um, and so um, it, it just came about that um, they, uh, they, you know, because of COVID and other things, they hadn't been to church in a while, and, but they still wanted me to have some part in the service. It wouldn't be mine to do because it would be their, their children's, to, and their children, the church where their children worship to handle. Um, and so I, I sent a text message out to, the, to all of our ruling elders and just said, here's kind of what I'm thinking. If, if we need to leave early and if we need to kind of leave General Assembly early, here's how we might do that. And, and you know, can you guys be taking care of these things if we do that? And uh, one of them texted me back and he said, we met and we decided that you will stay exactly where you are. And all of us will go to the funeral. All of us will be present. And if anybody asks where you are, we will tell them you are doing your job. We told you to stay, and you're a man under authority. They said, don't get in the car and come back. You've got, you got work to do where you are. Um, and that, bless me, exactly, exactly what you just said. Um, and so my, my word of encouragement, again, to ruling elders would be like, <laughs> kind of with a smile, don't be afraid to handle your, your, your pastor like that. Just to say, no, we, we met, and this is what we're going to do. Yeah. And, and you take care of what you're doing, and we're going to Amen. My final encouragement is, um, well, first of all, don't get all high and mighty and go back and tell your church, I'm going to be an ordinary means of grace pastor from now on, and you can suck it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For one, your sermons probably aren't that good yet. But... uh, there are a lot of things we do to get to do the things we want to do. Yeah. And if you have to mow the lawn so you can preach the word, or if you have to unlock when somebody forgot their Bible or their cell phone, you know, um, I, I read this in Hughes Old and Eugene Peterson, two remarkable people who had long histories in the pastorate, and they talked about places where they went and things changed a little bit. Uh, they didn't change a whole lot, but, you know, they realized little by little. Yeah. And so um, don't, don't go back all yeah. uh, get geeked up high Amen. and mighty and declare, you know, a new day. Uh, <laughs> but my encouragement, my encouragement, and it pertains not just to this, but to broadly believe the gospel yeah. in ministry. Um, believe that you have been justified. Um, you know, it's remarkable how believing the gospel is so practical. Like, I remember I went out of a meeting with somebody when I was state clerk, and, and I saw somebody, and they said, how'd it go? And I said, well, if you hear that I kidnapped the Lindbergh baby, it's not true. <laughs> because this, this person had told me all kinds of things that I had done wrong. Um, and I think I was in a particularly good time with my confidence in the gospel, and I said, you don't know half of it. It's way worse than you think it is. Because <laughs> my righteousness is a settled question, and whether it's in a potential conflict with somebody so you can be a peacemaker, or whether it's in kind of that quiet, lonely moment where you're sitting there thinking, man, I wish I'd you know, gone to trade school. Uh, I wish my... I wish my family wanted to be in ministry um, or else I had another job. I mean, the gospel is eminently serviceable uh, for, for just being encouraged. And, and it, it's not just a functional thing to help you preach better to others. Uh, it's, it's, it's your life, right? And so sometimes we starve or, or 
or otherwise ourselves and forget to believe the gospel. Yeah, can I amen that and, and just say slow change is always preferable to fast change? kind of goes along with what I said before about the, your, your elders being bought in to something and not trying to force it on them. When I went to First Pres Jackson, there were three particular things that, that I thought were really, really hampering the ministry of the church that were woven into the fabric of how they did things. And I, I quietly said to the Lord, Lord, I am not going to say a word about those things for seven years. I was 35 years old pastoring a church that had been pastored by a faithful founding father uh, of our denomination before me. I was a punk kid going in uh, to that setting, and I, I didn't think I had the chips to go in. I didn't think it would be wise for me. Now, the Lord addressed each of those things. He, he raised them up. Those issues came up by the elders themselves, brought them up. Uh, within my little seven-year time frame, but I, I did not. Uh, now, you, sometimes there are. Sometimes the leaders of the church want you to change certain things. So I'm not saying don't change things that the leaders of the church already know need to be changed. But uh, but it, it, slow change is always preferable uh, to quick superficial change. And uh, so, absolutely, amen.